0: Ordinary Fellowship is a podcast inspired by the Puritan practice of godly conference or spiritual conversations among believers. These spiritual conversations will offer practical spiritual help for Christian living. I'm Jeremy Lee and with me again is Matthew McLaughlin, my friend and co-host. Good morning, Matthew. Are you ready to talk about Christmas? I am ready to talk about Christmas and good morning to you too, Jeremy. All right, so we're going to begin by reading from Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on, day, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in a battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Our King is coming. It's an exciting text of Scripture. It's an exciting time of year when people are thinking about Christ's birth, and even secular songs and secular TV shows are alluding to the Christian faith. So we wanted to spend some time talking about Christmas-related themes, and maybe even call them myths. So that's what we're going to look at today is some of these Christmas themes or Christmas myths, if you would. Right. It is an interesting
1: topic to think through. So let's just dive into the deep end. So if you spend any time on Facebook or on Twitter, or any social media, you look around, you see bumper stickers that say, keep Christ in Christmas, which leads us to our first topic. (laughs) So, the reason why this bumper sticker gained so much notoriety is because there was a seeming secularization by putting an X instead of Christ into Christmas. So the first myth is, is Xmas unbiblical?
0: yeah well not not only the bumper sticker, but Bill O'Reilly really made a career out of the war on Christmas, so the Xmas was one of those things, and so in response they said, "Keep Christ in christmas and i i've i I used to try to explain this every year to people why it's not bad and one of the reasons I do is because when I was pastoring, I actually had just scribbled down some notes. Before service, and I wrote Xmas. Uh, I can't even remember what I was announcing, but it was something about Christmas, and I just wrote Xmas. And uh, one of the guys, one of the guys in the church, I, I saw my note and said, "I can't believe a pastor would write that." And so I started. I started trying. I already knew what it was all about, but I started digging a little more in depth. And it's really not that difficult to understand. In, the New Testament was written in Greek, and um, because it wasn't paper, but the product they used to write on was expensive, um, and, and even having scrolls and writing books, it, it, w- it was all very expensive, so they wanted to maximize the space. Then there was no space, no punctuation in these early Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, And one of the ways they made for space is some of the names of God would be shortened. Uh, So instead of writing uh, the Greek word Christos, which is Christ, uh, it would just be the letter X in English and the letter uh, S, which is Sigma in Greek. And that was shorthand for Christ, and everybody would know they put a line above it so that you'd know it was, it was shorthand and it stood for Christ. And so it was, it was a way of maximizing the space they were using, making it easier to transcribe and things like that. And so when, when they ha- start celebrating Christmas, which was a mass that involving Christ's birth, where they, it was a festival for Christ's birth, they shortened it to Christmas because the letter X or key in Greek uh, which is the same as our X is the first initial <laughs> of Christ so the X actually stands for Christ and it's Ligonier Ministries has a good article on this that he used to share all the time and R.C. Sproul would explain that it's no more insulting to call Christmas Xmas than it is to call him R.C. Sproul uh, because they're doing the same thing. Now, granted, there may be some people who use Xmas because they hate Christ. That may very well be possible. But we as Christians shouldn't assume that just because someone uses Xmas that they're trying to do away with Christ. Um, i I even had one time when I shared this on Facebook, and I don't know who it was, so they may listen to this and go, oh, that was me. <laughs> I actually had someone respond when I shared this to say that I love Jesus so much that i would I would write his name take the time to write his name out and While I appreciate the heart behind that, writing Jesus' name is really not a sign of our devotion to him. Uh, there's nothing wrong with using shorthand, especially writing it in your notes. I mean, yeah, maybe paper doesn't cost that much. We don't need to ma- maximize space as much. So maybe there's not as much use for it. But, you know, it's, it's still not, the intent is not evil in all likelihood. It's probably just, it's a, it's a way of shortening it up so it's so it still stands for Christ even though the full name isn't written out so we shouldn't be upset or think that this is a, a way of people waging war on Christmas necessarily it may be but let's let's give people the benefit of the doubt rather than assuming ill intent right
1: i think that's the key point is that one of our struggles is we assume ill intent and I think the challenge is to always give people the benefit of the doubt unless they clearly demonstrate that they don't deserve it by their actions
0: well and it's easy to do when especially when Christians often feel like today that the whole culture is against them the media politicians it it makes someone it makes sense to conclude that Especially if you don't know the historical background of why that came to be. So now you know, so there's no reason necessarily to get upset about it right. or to use this as another way to say they're trying to take Christ out of Christmas. Right. There
1: are plenty of examples where the culture is seeking to remove Christian value. Changing Christmas to Xmas is not one of them.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Right.
1: So, now that we've, we've started, let's, start, let's talk about another one. This is, all, this is going to be a fun one, Jeremy, especially for most of our listeners. It goes like this. Was Mary a perpetual virgin?
0: <laughs> I didn't know you were going to slam this one on me. Well, I did what I could do.
1: But <laughs> let's put it like this. I was looking some. So, to explain the topic a little bit, if you listen to Roman Catholic teaching, Roman, the Roman Catholic Church will say that Mary was a perpetual virgin. By that, what they mean is that she was a virgin before Joseph, during the time that she had Jesus, and then after. The entirety of her life, she maintained virgin status, both physically and spiritually, that she remained right. a virgin. This starts- not, not
0: only did she never... Uh, have sexual intercourse, but Jesus was born in a way that nothing was messed up. She Correct. Maintained her virginity in perpetuity.
1: Correct. It's codified in, in I believe the 500s, and then there's another papal dogma that I think Martin the First does one of the councils around 600. But you also, when you spend time reading, you can find there are some. Tertullian said it, Augustine at one point said it, Luther believed it to a degree, so did Calvin. So how are we to reconcile this idea with the fact that in Scripture it says that Jesus had brothers and sisters?
0: Yeah. Well, I actually discovered that Luther and Calvin believed this when I I was going to teach on it, and I was actually quite stunned by what I found. Now, To say Calvin and Luther agreed with it, they agreed that Mary remained a virgin all her life. I don't think they would have agreed with the odd way that she may have given birth. I'm not an expert in Roman Catholicism, so I don't know that all of them believe this, but I, I don't think Calvin and Luther would have agreed with that. All they were agreeing with was that Mary remained a virgin all of her life. Uh, She remained consecrated to God and served Him. Nowadays, Roman Catholics, when I ordinarily hear this being talked about, will say that when the Bible refers to Jesus' brothers and sisters, that actually the word could be translated as cousins. So it's referring to cousins. And that's typically the way that it's been explained to me, and any time that I've ever heard Roman Catholics talk about it, that was the way it was explained but what i was stunned to discover when i started looking into this that there's actually a christian tradition that says and this is the older tradition what what calvin and luther may have believed i don't know for sure that joseph was actually an older man and who he had had a previous marriage and in with that marriage he had children and so the brothers and sisters mentioned in the gospels would be Jesus' stepbrothers in in this tradition joseph married married Mary because it would be unbecoming of him to live with a young woman apart from being married so Joseph married her to provide for her and to protect her so that she wouldn't be a widow because to be a widow in that day or not a widow to be unmarried in that day was to sentence you to poverty and all that kind of stuff, so Joseph would have married her to provide for her and to protect her and to help her, but he was an older man and they never uh, had a sexual relationship. I was I was stunned to find this out. Now, the it, this is a Christian tradition, which means it doesn't come from Scripture, uh, so this this doesn't have the authority of the Word of God behind it, but it does it does make a little bit of sense. So there have been reformers in the past who have held to the idea that Mary remained a virgin her entire life, uh, even after having Christ, and and they base it on this uh, Christian tradition. And today, though, most Protestants believe uh, that, um, that Joseph and Mary had a normal marital relationship after Jesus was born and that the brothers and sisters who are spoken of in the gospel were born from that marriage. One of the good things to me was to see that, you know, you don't have to come down dogmatically on either side of this. It this isn't really anything that needs to be debated per se. Other than I mean, maybe is an interesting fact, good people can differ on this and we could still be christians if we disagree on this point. And this is not to say as a protestant that I don't have any problems with the roman catholic view of the perpetual virginity, but we're not here to get into that. My my point is to say that a protestant a could biblically hold to this without being labeled as some as a Roman Catholic or something like that. I, I don't know how else to say how you'd be labeled for believing this. So.
1: Right. I think the main idea for us to understand and comprehend is that while there's some discussion and debate from a Protestant standpoint, you can't hold to the,
0: the Catholic
1: view and be okay.
0: Right. Because the Catholic view goes way further than either of us are willing to go. Uh, it goes beyond what even this Christian tradition suggests. It goes beyond Scripture. So, when we're talking about this, the the tradition is just that Mary married an older man who protected and cared for her, and the children were from a previous marriage. That's the tradition. The other things that have been added on, we're not affirming those at all. Right.
1: So just to make it simple and clear we're not affirming that somehow Mary is a step above the rest of humanity right what what we are saying is that there is a Christian tradition that possibly could be true that could explain some of the ideas behind the the concept that Mary was a perpetual virgin and even in that even in that terminology we probably wouldn't not necessarily agree with the term perpetual, we could, we could hold to the idea that she was still a virgin. Yeah. So, now that we, we went into the deep topic, let's go one more. So, there's lots of Christmas carols and Christmas hymns. Now, the struggle is sometimes things that sound good rhyming don't necessarily make for proper theology. So, an example that we want to talk about is there's a line in a way in a manger in the second verse that says, no crying he makes, speaking of Jesus. Jeremy, just bluntly, what's wrong with saying, no crying he makes?
0: Well, it's probably wrong. <laughs> that, that's the problem. I'm not going to get into why the hymn writer would write this. I, I don't know what his his or her, I don't even know who wrote it. I don't know what the motives are behind it. I don't believe that Jesus didn't cry. In order... So in order to say that he didn't cry, one would have to assume that every time an infant cries, it would be a sinful cry. I don't think when my daughter Zoe cries because she's hungry, that, is, that it's always sinful. Now, of course, since we're born in sin, even Zoe's cry for hunger is tainted with sin. And so no doubt Jesus would have been a better baby than anybody, any other baby. But babies don't have any other way to communicate than through crying. And I don't believe that Jesus said when he was infant, dear mother, I need to eat. So, and the reason we're talking about this is because I think it's a wrong idea of who Jesus is. And I, we need to have a biblical idea of who Jesus is. So some of this comes from the fact that Jesus has two natures. He's one person with two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. And we, as conservative evangelicals, believe in his divinity, and since his divinity is usually the thing that's attacked, we really stand firm on that. But sometimes when we do that, we end up like undermining his humanity. Jesus was truly human. He was truly God, truly man. The only There was two things unique about Jesus, and they actually go together. One is that he was born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit, as the Apostles' Creed says. And then the second one was that he was without sin. So when it comes to Jesus' human nature, Jesus as a baby, as long as we're not asserting something about him that makes him a sinner, then it's likely that Jesus probably was involved in that. So again, you'd have to say that every time an infant cries, it's for sinful reasons, but it because it's a way that infants communicate their needs with whoever's caring for them, I don't think we can say that. And because Jesus was a truly human, he, he likely would have cried. We're talking about this not to pick on the hymn, but to hit on the idea that Jesus was truly human. And to understand his human nature. And I've often wondered, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, Matthew, but I've often wondered if Jesus Jesus ever got punished. You know, a lot of people think that he didn't, but I'm a parent, okay? Parents mess up. We're we're sinners. And his parents were sinners. So I'm I wonder if Jesus ever got in trouble for something he didn't do. <laughs> he was actually innocent of it and got punished for it. Right, Right. I think
1: one way we could think about that is even when you go back to the story in the end of Luke 2, when he's at the temple, you could read into it that Joseph and Mary weren't exactly happy that he (laughs) ran away and went back to the temple to debate the Pharisees, and yet he didn't do anything wrong. And so, but yeah, that is an interesting question for us to consider. But I do think, like what you said, we what we need to remember. The struggle is that for us to fully comprehend the fact that Jesus was completely human and be, since he was completely human, then it makes it easier for us to grasp hold of the fact that he understands all of the things that we face, all of our sufferings, all of our trials, all of our problems, that he experienced them. Because if we diminish his humanity, then it reduces, seemingly reduces his capacity to, to comprehend what it's like to be a human. But since yeah. he was fully human, he completely understands. So, therefore, he experienced everything humans experience, which means he experienced all the range of emotions, which includes tears of probably, tears of happiness, tears of joy, tears of sorrow. So, crying, he was hungry. <laughs> right. So, that's the key thing for us to remember as we as we consider this, is that, jesus was both truly god
0: and truly man and and not only is it about his understanding that's all true and that is very encouraging because that means jesus understands the cries of your sick child he understands their hung cry for their hunger pains he jesus comprehends and understands and can sympathize with all of that because he experienced it himself we don't have a God who sits in the heavens and who cannot understand and sympathize because we have a Savior who has come and experienced all that we've experienced. All of that's true and all of that's good. But if Jesus was not truly man, if he was not a man, if he was not a human being, then we do not have an adequate Savior. Because only a human being could die for other the sins of other human beings. He had to be truly man to die for our sins, or he would have died for whatever kind of thing he was, rather than us. The
1: sacrifice would have been inadequate if he wasn't truly man.
0: Right. And so this is just as important to defend as it is to defend Jesus' divinity. It's just not under attack in the same way. Right. Because... A large part of those
1: discussions and those fights happened much earlier in church history. Yeah. So, we want to talk about one other idea or thought, and that's this. So, Jeremy, why do we celebrate Christmas on December
0: 25th? Well, according to most people, we celebrate on December 25th because there was a pagan feast on that day. And as an alternative... The church decided to have the celebration of Christ's birth. Now, a lot of people believe this, but it's a complete lie. There's no truth to it. Christians from an early, early, early time, before these pagans even existed, (laughs) celebrated the birth of Christ, maybe at different times and different dates uh, until it became, you know, before they settled on a certain date. But it, it was not from paganism, and I'll probably be sharing some things on our Facebook page about this after we publish our podcast, just so you have further information. Because I think this is really important. Because you're going to hear this on the History Channel. Your friends on Facebook are going to be posting it. A lot of Christians believe this, but it's just not true. Why do we celebrate it, though? And in December, why do we de- celebrate it on December twenty-fifth, in particular? Initially, m- from my understanding, the reason why Christians decided on December twenty-fifth is is because of the ancient belief that prophets died on the date of their conception. So, Jesus died in in. Passover near the month of, in the month of March or April, and nine months later is December. So that's how they came up with that date. Now, I'm not saying that their reasoning behind it was good. I don't believe, and nobody really believes today, that prophets die on the date of their conception. But that's why they picked that that that's why that date became associated with Christ's birth I don't think their reason was good but that's why one of the reasons they came up with that date and it wasn't because of paganism it was because of of this ancient belief now there's actually been and I I have not looked at the primary sources uh, for this I've seen many people that that I trust talk about this idea Uh, But we know that John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus, according to Luke. And in Luke, Luke Luke talks about the fact that it was John the Baptist's parents found out that they were going to be parents uh, when his father was serving in the temple. And from what I understand, we actually have records of when the specific priest's when they when they served in the temple and did their duties so we actually have a record of when the John, when John the Baptist's father served in the temple and it was 6 months before Jesus so you can extrapolate all do all the math and figure out when it was but the date that comes up it comes up with and I, I forgot to check out the exact dates but it's December 25th through 12 days after. Right, January 6th. January 6th. Right, which, as just as a fun
1: fact, though you ever hear the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, the reason why is because the dates stretch from December 25th, which is the date of Christmas in Western Christianity, yep. and January 6th is the date of Christmas in Eastern
0: Christianity. Right, so they've got – basically, they've got it covered. So – The idea is that at some point in this time frame during the celebration, Christ Christ was born based on the record that we have of the priests. Again, nothing to do with paganism. Right. And I actually read an article this morning where there's some scholars, and I'll try to remember to share this on our Facebook page as well. well. There's some scholars who have calculated the date to be December 1st. The point is that early Christians thought the date was in December, and we actually have some evidence that it was in December, in spite of their erroneous belief that a prophet dies on his date of conception. So in spite of that, we still, we can see that Jesus may have very likely been born in December, And it's not inspired by paganism, but it could be inspired by the actual fact that he was born in December. Right. I
1: think one of the things for us to understand is like what Jeremy was so adequately to explain to us is there are elements of Christmas, of the Christmas holiday, that you can trace back to pagan ideas as an example the Christmas tree probably comes from a pagan idea, but... I don't know about that. I understand. There's some, <laughs> there's some theories that say it traces back to some pagan ideas, but the other thing for us to remember is just from a historical record standpoint, Christmas was celebrated by Christians by a probably between, started in the early 200s. If you go back and read the history of the church, here's a piece of advice so you don't have to read so much. Christians didn't take from pagans in the early 200s. <laughs> They, pagans were killing them. Correct. So they weren't exactly saying, oh, that would be a nice thing for us to take. So they didn't do that. <laughs> so this idea that because there are elements of the Christmas holiday that you can trace back to a pagan roots means the whole thing has to come from pagan roots is, well, as someone once told me, fancy word, baloney.
0: <laughs> and and what happens, and I, I see this time and time again, every Christ, Christian holiday is tarred and feathered with this idea. Every single one of them is. Um, And what happens, if you actually look at the sources where these things come from, is there's a little bit of similarity, and it gets put into that this is the exact same thing, but there's no evidence that Christians ever had anything to do with that. If we just talk about the Christmas tree, okay? There may have been pagans that used the tree and did... Did that, but you'd have to show pagan influence. You don't. You don't just show. Well, Christians did this and pagans did it. So, let we assume that it came from the pagans. Why wouldn't? You, why not assume it the other way around? Maybe the pagans stole it from the Christians. But that that's the problem. Is that they these people see a similarity and they make some assumptions, but there's no evidence of any relationship between the two. And, and that's where we get these silly ideas.
1: Right, and so just to reiterate, we're not saying Christmas trees are bad. Christmas trees are very, still very good things. So <laughs> don't go trying to read too much into it. The simple example what <laughs> Jeremy was saying is is that at some point, either like he was saying, or even if it's the idea that the Christians saw this Christmas tree idea and they just start to redeem it for a better purpose, that's immaterial to the question that... Right we'll seek an answer, which is what we've been talking about. One last thing, and that's I want to return to Isaiah 9 and verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't reiterate once again that Jesus came for a purpose. He came as the light of the world to shine light on man's problem, which was sin, that all of us have. All of us are sinners. Jesus, as we've talked about before, Jesus might have cried because he was hungry, but he didn't cry because he didn't get his way. He didn't cry because of sin, but we do, and we're, we are sinners. And Jesus as the light came to, sh- to live that perfect life that we can't live, so that he might die the death, that we deserve to die, because it says clearly in Scripture that the wages of sin is death, and we deserve eternal punishment for what we did, for what we do each and every day. But because Jesus came and lived that life and died the death, when we transfer our trust into onto who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we now there have no longer faced the punishment because he took the punishment for us. And so we can look at the world and we can see that he came to shine his light into the darkness of our souls. So anything you want to add on that, Jeremy?
0: No, that, that was excellent. I, I said no, but yes. Go ahead. That was excellent. <laughs> I would say a, a good way to say, summarize what you're saying is that light endured darkness so that darkness could enjoy light forever.
1: Amen. So we want to begin by saying we hope all of you have a Merry Christmas, but we also want to thank you for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship, which is a ministry of Two Rivers Community Church. If you'd like more information about Two Rivers, you can find it at www.tworiverscc.org. Please send us comments or questions or even that dreaded hate mail at ordinaryfellowshipgmail.com at and follow us on Facebook at Ordinary Fellowship. But until next time, we thank you again for listening to Ordinary Fellowship, where we strive to have spiritual conversations for practical Christian living.